Psalm 131, if you'd like to open up there. Father, we invite and ask, Lord, we plead for your grace in our understanding of your word this morning. We simply want to take your word as you intend it. And we pray for right interpretation, Father, and right understanding, and then personal application, Lord, for all of our lives, for this fellowship, for your church, for us in the world today. We pray, Lord, that we might be uh, enabled to see things as you do and to hear your voice speaking, that we might hear a word behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it. And Lord, I thank you for your marvelous word, and I thank you that you saw fit to speak to us in such a way and to give us such grounding in a world that is so often out of control. Well, today, Father, we, we give our hearts to you, our minds to you, and we come asking, lead us, Holy Spirit, now in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we're going to take the last four steps of the Psalms of Ascent. These are Psalms for going up, the Psalms of Ascent. Psalms for going up to Jerusalem, up to the temple. In fact, as we discussed on Wednesday night, the Hebrew Mishnah tells us that these were called Psalms of the Steps. And the Mishnah says they referred to those 15 steps leading up to the temple that the the Levites would traverse as they went up, one step at a time, singing one psalm at a time. 15 steps, 15 psalms. They would sing through these psalms as they went. And we've looked at these. We've spent a couple of weeks now looking through these on Wednesdays, on Sundays, seeking the clear interpretation of these psalms. Who were they written for? Why were they written? How were they sung? What was their application back in that day? Why were they organized together, these 15, as they have been? And we've looked for that interpretation. We've also talked about application. And my favorite application of these psalms is that these are psalms about going up. And we are interested in going up. Ultimately, that's the desire of the heart of any follower of Jesus Christ, that we might be where He is. He went to prepare a place for us that where He is, we may also be. So these psalms for going up should have some hint, some encouragement for those interested in going up. For those who are alive and remain, who will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4.17 Are you interested in going up? Do you want to get to the summit, to, to reach the peak, to get all the way up as, as though we were the Jewish people going up to Jerusalem? An interest not just in getting up to the top of the mountain, not just to the top of the city, not even to the, to the summit there of the temple, but going up beyond that in, in worship, in the presence of God, to go up and to be where He is. If you're interested in arriving to meet Jesus, then I think these psalms have great application for you. Throughout Scripture, the Lord has given us previews of the summit. You could call, call it peaks at the peak, where we've been enabled by the power of God's Word and by what He has told us to, to look ahead, to see what's coming, to have some idea of what's going on. We talked a couple weeks about Nebuchadnezzar's dream, the dream that that great king had in Daniel chapter 2. And Daniel interpreted the dream of the great nations of the world who are represented by that glorious statue. You recall that Nebuchadnezzar saw. I think the, Nebu- the statue probably looked like Nebuchadnezzar himself. You know, he was pretty impressed with himself in those days before God taught him a lesson. 
But suddenly this glorious statue looming there before Nebuchadnezzar, out, out of nowhere, a stone not cut out by human hands, comes flying through the air and smashes into the feet of the statue and the whole thing crumbles and ends up being like chaff blown on the wind. It's a pretty stunning dream that he has. And the stone itself, the stone not cut by human hands, suddenly begins to grow and becomes a mountain that covers the entire earth. My friends, the stone is Jesus Christ. The mountain is his kingdom that is a worldwide, a global, will cover the entire earth. We know his kingdom will come. What we don't always know is how do we get there? How do we prepare to go up? How can we be ready when He calls and when He comes back, to come back with Him, to be among those who are part of that that marvelous holy priesthood, that government of Jesus Christ? Well, as we finish the Psalms of Ascent this morning, four final Psalms, four final steps, and these steps, I believe, will help us in being prepared to go up when He calls. Step number one. Psalm 131. Step number one, you could call the small step of humility. The small step of humility. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child that rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. I love this psalm. Short, easy, quick to read, long to, uh, to apply. You know, it's one of those that takes a lifetime to really get some grasp or understanding of, though it only takes a moment to read. Oh Lord, my heart is not proud. I don't involve myself in great matters and things too difficult for me. David says, I don't overthink things. I don't delve into the deep end of the intellectual pool. I don't worry about things that are beyond me, things that I can't control. I just let the Lord take care of that. Now, I read this and I think that's a wonderful place to be. Of course, David didn't live in the kind of, well, world that we live in. Information was not moving in David's day the way it's moving today. June 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong stepped out of the lunar module, the Eagle, Onto the face of the moon, which still astounds me. I say that from time to time. You know, when my kids don't clean up the rooms, I say, you know what, we can put a man on the moon and you can't clean your room? Come on. He stepped onto the face of the moon and through a crackling radio signal, Armstrong declared, you recall, one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And it was an impressive, world-stirring moment. But you know what? It was not the most world-changing moment of 1969. In fact, another step was taken in 69. Most people were oblivious too. But its impact has overtaken us far more, even than space travel has. The internet first went online in 1969. Oh, not as we understand it or see it today. But that was when it began. And then in 1989, the World Wide Web was proposed by Al Gore. I mean, by British scientist... Tim Berners-Lee. This British scientist, and, and another, they got together, and, and WWW, the World Wide Web, put together to be an application for all people around the globe. It was implemented for the first time working in 1991, and with that, we fully embraced the information age. It's only been 20 years. How fast is information moving now? How dependent are we on our computers, on the Internet, 
on being aware of every little thing that's going on in a split second, the 24-hour news cycle. We have to know. We have to take it in. And knowledge has taken off in a way unlike any time in history. The information age. We are impacted by a glut of information. It has sped up. Sure signs that the prophet Daniel was told of the end of time. Daniel chapter 12 verse 4 The angel said to Daniel, As for you, Daniel, conceal these words. Seal up the book until the end of time. In other words, the book of Daniel shouldn't make sense or be understandable. Until the end of time, it would be sealed up. Well, we understand it now, okay? We have history to look back. We have the keys of prophecy. And we have the book of Revelation. Daniel makes sense now in a way it couldn't have to him. Information is sped up. The angel said, seal up the book until the end of time. Many will go back and forth, implying global travel. And knowledge will increase. The word increase, used there in Daniel 12 verse 4, is rabab in the Hebrew, and it means exceeding, multiplying, as in the information age. Not just that there will be more information available, but it will be rapid and increasing and multiplying at an incredible rate. And what do we see in the world that we live in today? When you hear things like, oh yeah, Pastor Rick is an end times guy. You know, he's one of those last days pastors. He's always... Let me tell you, when I look around at the global travel that we can reach anywhere on the globe these days, and when I look at the exceeding knowledge that is multiplying, these are defining characteristics the Bible says of the last days, and these are defining characteristics of today, the age in which we live. We don't know how to stop. And and that's part of the problem with all this information. Information can be very good. And information can be very powerful. And we have this insatiable hunger for information. I need the info. 24-7. And the problem is it's overwhelming us. And it's wiping us out. And Solomon said rightly in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 12, My son, be warned, the writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is worrying worrying to the body. It's just, aren't there times when you just want to turn off the news because it's too much? There's so much constant flow of information. So many books to read. So many things to know. Cheryl and I got, got each other Kindles for Christmas. The Amazon Kindle, you can download books onto it. 13 million books right now are available for a Kindle. 13 million! A single Kindle can hold, I'm told, over 3,000 books. Why do I want to carry 3,000 books around with me? It's the information glut. And it's wearing us out. There's so much to know. But there's only one thing, truly, that's necessary. There's only one thing we need to know. One thing that will get us to the summit... David says, compose and quiet the soul. And come to know Jesus Christ. That's the one thing. And all this other stuff, I guarantee you, the vast majority of it is to distract. We have to know this. We have to know that. We have to know these other things. And the Lord's saying, no, you need to know me. And if you know me, I'm going to get you to the summit. David had the right frame of mind. I quiet myself. I compose my soul. I don't worry about all these things that are too difficult to understand. Paul would agree with David. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul backed off 
from Athens, Greece, where he had just come from. And the preaching in Athens, which was very philosophical, as you can read about in Acts 17, and very, you know, he used the kind of the the language of the day to reach the people and, and talked in heady words. He says, I backed off of that. I came to Corinth and all I told you was the gospel. Jesus and Him crucified. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And you know, from time to time, I, I do have people come up and, and say, Oh, Rick, you, you just know the Word so well. You know, don't, don't be confused. Don't, don't think that what you hear on a Sunday morning is impressive or powerful because of the one delivering it. It's not. I, I tell you this again and again and again. The Word is what's amazing. And the Spirit is what is incredible. And, and getting it to us, all we've done here in the barn, the only thing we can take credit for is we've opened the Bible and said, Lord, teach us. It's that simple. If anything, my words get in the way. It's God's Word. Psalm 131, shortest among the Psalms, this quick read, it takes forever to learn. We want to surge ahead, but the Lord says, wait, wait, wait. One small step. The small step of humility. You've got to come humbly. If you want to go up, you've got to take a humble step. You know what we need for this? We need little feet. Not like the hang ten shirts, which I used to love. Had a brown one with little orange feet. Really cool. Really cool. I was 10 years old at the time. Hang 10. I was 10. I, I just thought it was great. Kids, kids gang, people with little feet are usually just good to go because they don't need all the information. They don't need to know it all. They don't really care to know it all. I remember the first time my daughter Hannah, she was about, oh, I think maybe five years old, asked me where babies came from. And I sat down and said, okay, honey, put her up on my knee. Boy, this is sooner than I expected. But I said, well, your mommy, and that was all she needed to know, and she wanted to go off and play. I was so relieved. (laughs) We don't have to get into all of that. I I still don't think we've had that conversation. Anyway, (laughs) kids don't need all the info like adults do. Just tell me where I'm... I'm supposed to believe in Jesus? Good. I'm good to go. And that's the kind of heart that David talks about. He says, I've composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child against his mother. Jesus said in Matthew 18, when the disciples came to him, and they were asking who's the greatest in the kingdom, he called a child to himself. And he said in before them, and he said, truly I say to you, Unless you're converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And another time they were bringing their babies to him so that he would touch them. Luke chapter 18, verse 15. And the disciples saw that and they rebuked the people. Stop that. You know, don't bother Jesus. Keep those babies quiet. Those children have no business in this area. This is serious stuff. We're getting the information. And Jesus called for them saying, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. 
Now, Jesus is describing kingdom entrance, but notice he doesn't say you've got to become like babies. That's not the word he uses. He welcomes babies, (laughs) which is a good thing, but he says whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. Now think about that. He welcomes babies, but he wants us to be like children. Come on to me, he says to any whiny, crying little baby. To any infant, bring them to me. But I want you to be converted to be like a child. Like a child, a weaned child, David says, against his mother. See, that's not an infant in Psalm 131 verse 2. It's not an infant. There's hardly a person alive more self-centered than an infant. More selfish, more self-concerned. Hungry, they cry. Full, they poop. Tired, they sleep. And it doesn't matter what's going on around them. It doesn't matter who's there. It doesn't matter what the circumstance is. They're going to make the noise they need to make to get what they need in that moment. That's the infant. The weaned child. This is a little different. I remember... Cheryl and I learned a lot over the years. Our first son, Corey, remember trying to learn how to wean him. As young parents, we thought we had to feed him whenever he asked. Let me just tell you, young parents, it's not the best move. Because we learned another two-word phrase, projectile vomiting. (laughs) We overfed this boy, and I kid you not, I could have held him right here and he would hose the back of the barn. It was incredible what he would do. And we just overfed him. And so there was always milk in his stomach and it began to spoil in there and he would get stomach aches and and out it would come. And And he cried, I kid you not, for three straight months. Unless we put him in the bathtub. So, you know, he was mostly a raisin most of the time. We just put him in the tub, you know. But after that time, when he was weaned, he settled down. In fact, he's still the most laid-back person I've ever met in my life. A lot of us come to Jesus like infants. You know, we're very self-centered. We're crying for all of our needs. We think that we're the most important person in the room, in His presence, in that moment. And He welcomes us like infants. But He says, I want you to be like children. I want you to lose the self-centered cry of the infant, that straining and that craving and and that rooting for the next feeding. I want you to relax. The picture that David gets is a contented child who is resting in his mother's arms who knows mom's got it under control. Dad's going to take care of me. They're going to get me where I need to be. They're going to feed me when it's time to eat. They're going to take care of things and I can rest in this. The weaned child resting against his mother. And David concludes it saying, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever. So it's not about amassing great knowledge, even great biblical knowledge. And you know my heart, we need to be in the Word. And we need to fill up on the Word. And if there's any information in the world we should pour ourselves into, it's this right here. But even with that, gang, it's not about head knowledge that gets us there. And it's not striving for every self-satisfying little morsel that we can get out of being in this church or being a Christian or being a follower of Jesus. It's childlike humility. Resting in the arms of our Jesus. One small step for man is one giant leap forward to the summit of the kingdom. Secondly, the second step, Psalm 132 what I would call the sure step of prophecy. Now you may want to buckle up. We're going to be here for a bit. If you have your Bible belts, fasten them. 
Remember, O Lord, on David's behalf all his affliction. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, Surely I will not enter my house, nor lie on my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Now, David writing this psalm would know what he's talking about. Actually, David didn't write this psalm. He wrote Psalm 131. This psalm, well, there are different perspectives on it. Some say it's post-exilic. I think the language in it completely points to the author of it, and that would be Solomon. So it's not after the exile, it's it's long before the exile of Israel. But these words recall David's passion. As it opens up, you hear David's passion to build a temple for the Lord. That's described in 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is one of the key prophetic passages in Scripture. God's promise to David to build him a house and put one of his descendants on the throne. And Delich says this psalm is suited to the mouth of Solomon. In fact, as you read through it, the context seems pretty clear. It was probably that time when the Ark of the Covenant was removed from the tabernacle of David and brought into the temple. This is one of the 150 psalms, the only one that overtly mentions the Ark of the Covenant down in verse 8. Now, I mentioned uh, last week or the week before, I think the ark may have been alluded to back in Psalm 122 where it says an ordinance or a testimony for Israel. And I think that may have been the ark being referred to there. But the only place in all the Psalms where the ark is named as the ark is here in verse 8 of this Psalm. Prophetically, however, though it is probably written by Solomon about that time in Solomon's life, it leaps beyond Solomon to the greater than Solomon. It goes beyond the building of the temple to the son of David, not Solomon, but Jesus Christ. Verse 6. Watch this. Behold, we have heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the field of Yar, or the field of wood. We heard of it in Ephrathah. Okay, that is Bethlehem Ephrathah. A very specific place. Not the birthplace of Solomon that would be so amazing or exciting, Not just the birthplace of David. David was born there. This is the birthplace of Jesus Christ, son of David. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, As for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. And so we heard it. We heard about it in Bethlehem. We heard about it in Ephrathah. Something happened there. Something amazing. He goes on, verse 7. Let us go into His dwelling place. Let us worship at His footstool. Arise, O Lord, to Your resting place, You and the ark. And there it is, the ark of Your strength. Again, this is why we believe it was written by Solomon as the ark is being brought into the temple. But, again, prophetically, it jumps beyond this. It speaks of a greater rising. Verse 9. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your godly ones sing for joy. Now, that can be the priests there in the temple. That can be the priests being written about there. And yet, I find it interesting, singing priests robed in righteousness. The immediate interpretation is the temple priests, but the prophetic application is of the royal priesthood. Singing priests robed in righteousness... Revelation chapter 1 verse 6, He has made us to be a kingdom, priests to His God and Father. To Him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Revelation 5 verse 9, And they sang, who? These priests. 
They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Singing priests. Singing priests. And and how are they dressed? Revelation 19, verse 8. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Singing priests dressed in righteousness. As described here in verse 9 of Psalm 132. In verse 10 it goes on, For the sake of David your servant, do not turn away the face of your Mashiach, your anointed, your anointed one, Mashiach, Messiah in the Hebrew. Do not turn away the face from your anointed one. Now, verses 8 through 10 are word for word a direct quote from Solomon himself. Again, more proof that this is likely written by Solomon. 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 41 and 42 are the exact same words used in verses 8 through 10 right here in this psalm. That's at the dedication of the temple. And Solomon says these words. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Let your godly ones sing for joy. For the sake of David, your servant, do not turn away the face of your anointed. And Solomon prayed that. Speaking of the anointed. Did Solomon know that he was speaking of the anointed, the Mashiach, Jesus himself? Verse 11, the Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. You see, Paul tells us in Romans 11.29, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. A truth from which God will not turn back. He has sworn this. He made a promise to David that is absolute, that is not going to be uh, let go. He says, of the fruit of your body... I will set upon your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I will teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. Now listen, there's two things he's saying here. Of the fruit of your body, I'm going to set on the throne. And in addition to this, also he says, if your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, their sons will sit on the throne forever as well. Okay, so he's talking about two things. One absolute guarantee. There is one who's going to sit on the throne of David, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. It's going to happen. It's my will, declares the Lord. Isaiah says the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. There's one who will sit on my throne, and that's a done deal. Now, if if your son Solomon, if those coming after you will follow me, they'll sit on the throne for a while too. Of course, we know that they didn't. They didn't follow him. They failed to keep the covenant of the Lord, so they lost the throne, but that cannot change the promise of God that one of the fruit of David's body would be eternal, would be sitting on that throne. Watch this, verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for His habitation. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. That's not just a spiritualized thing that, well, you know, God kind of has His eye on Jerusalem, so that's like He lives there. No. He's saying, I have desired for this to be my habitation, my dwelling place. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10 says, In that day the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, referring again to the Messiah. 
who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place, his abode, the place where he lives, will be in Jerusalem. It will be a glorious place. Where? Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills. All the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So this one of the fruit of David's body is going to sit on the throne, will rule and reign from Jerusalem at a time, the Bible says, when all the nations of the world will flow to Jerusalem to see this one. To worship this one. Micah chapter 5 verse 4. He will arise and shepherd in the strength of the Lord. And in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. Micah prophesied. It's Jesus ruling and reigning from Jerusalem. Resting and residing there in the coming promised kingdom. I, I've shared with you, we've got this Friday group with, with these kids and we're going through and talking about some great things and some, some end times things and uh, looking at Revelation. And Friday I asked them, why a millennial kingdom? What's the point? Why, why would Jesus do this? If, if we take the Bible literally and say the church is going to be pulled out, there's going to be seven years of tribulation on earth, and then Jesus is going to return, and we're going to return with Him, and then for a thousand years after that, He's going to rule and reign on earth from Jerusalem. Why? And they were like, looking at each other and trying to figure it out. Rachel knew, but I wouldn't let her answer. And, and, and Lydia, you know, she said, well, is it, is it because... And you know what? They, they threw out some different ideas and finally they came to it. Because God said it. Because He promised He would. You see, God made a promise to David that out of His throne from Jerusalem there would be a kingdom. And one from His body would rule and reign in that kingdom. The millennial kingdom game, first and foremost, keeps God's promise to Israel. And when God makes a promise, He doesn't veer from it. So why is He doing it? Why did He make that promise in the first place? He's God. He'll have to answer that one for you Himself. But we know that He did make the promise, and when He makes a promise, He does not shy away from it. He doesn't let it go. He is always faithful to it. That's why there's going to be a millennial kingdom. Because He promised there would be. And He said it over and over throughout the Scriptures. Now, it's amazing. If you continue on verse 15, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her needy with bread. Her priests also I will clothe with salvation. Her godly ones will sing aloud for joy. And there they are singing again. And there I will cause the horn or the strength of David to spring forth. I have prepared a lamp for mine anointed, my Mashiach. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown will shine. His crown will shine. And of course in Revelation 19.12 we see Jesus coming with many diadems, many crowns, permanent crowns of his glory and his greatness. Now listen, there's a lot in here, in this psalm that I encourage you to go back and study. More than I have time to talk about this morning. And you might say, well why don't you just take the time and, and tell us, because you need to take the time and see what's in here. 
And so I encourage you, go back, go verse by verse, read it through, compare it to what you know of prophecy. Look up, even in your Bible, so many of them have the little, the little verses in the middle of the page. Check those, read them. They will help you understand what's going on here. But I'm just highlighting one thing here in Psalm 132. We've seen the small step of humility, Psalm 131. Psalm 132, gang, it is the sure step of prophecy. The sure step of prophecy highlighted here as we go up to the kingdom. We talk a lot about Bible prophecy at the bridge. Why? Because it is a step to the coming kingdom. And it's a solid step. It's not shaky. It's not creaky. It's not cracked or broken. It is a solid, assuring step as we move forward into the kingdom. 2 Peter 1.19 You've heard this before. Let me read it again. We have the prophetic word more sure to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. You would do well, Peter says, to pay attention to prophecy. Not to shy away from it. Now I know it gets weird in the world. And I know there are a lot of people co-opting prophecy to sell their wares and to to prove bizarre things and, and to get off into weird areas. I understand that. But the sure step of sound biblical prophecy will encourage your walk in Jesus Christ. It will take you the next step. I'm not talking about that soothsaying, fortune-telling drivel that's out there. Sometimes, tragically, even in the name of Christ. Those who claim the prophetic for their own personal agenda or gain. In fact, sadly, the misuse of prophecy like that causes stumbling on the steps rather than encouraging us to go forward. God has given us sound, biblical, profound prophecy which Peter says we would do well to pay attention to. Let me give you the most immediate example I can. And I promised this in an email I sent out. I want you to think about Egypt for a minute. Bible Belt still on? Turn to Isaiah chapter 19. Isaiah 19. Does the Bible say anything about what we see happening in Egypt today, right now, in all the unrest and the civil fighting and and the, the struggles going on there? I think it's a good question to ask. I think it's a good question to ask at any point. Does the Bible refer to what we see happening when great events emerge on the world stage? There's nothing wrong with going to Scripture and saying, Lord, is there something here? Now, I'm not encouraging you to, to pull out one verse here or there and try and find, oh, that's, that's prophecy, oh, that's prophecy, oh, my mail came on time, that's prophecy. That's not what we're talking about. But to ask the question, Lord, can you show us? Because He gave us His Word to reveal to us, to make clear to His people that we might know what's going on around us. That we might read things right. As Jesus says, that we might discern the signs of the times. We know how to tell the weather... But do we know how to see what's going on right now? Isaiah 19. Does the Bible talk about what we're seeing in Egypt? Possibly. Let's see this. The oracle concerning Egypt, verse 1. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. The idols of Egypt will tremble at His presence at the heart, and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. So I will incite Egyptians against Egyptians. And they will fight 
against his brother, each fight against his brother, and each against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. He's talking about civil unrest in Egypt. Then the spirit of the Egyptians will be demoralized within them, and I will confound their strategy so that they will resort to idols and ghosts of the dead and to mediums and to spiritists. Moreover, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master, and a mighty king will rule over them, declares the Lord God of hosts. Might this be unfolding before our eyes? Possibly. I'm not saying that it is. Don't go out of there here saying, Rick says Isaiah 19 is what's... No, I'm saying we need to test this before the Lord. Is this what's going on before us? The Muslim Brotherhood was part of a group that just met with Egypt's new vice president literally today. Or just, I guess it would be yesterday there, I'm not sure the time. But just the most recent thing popped up in the news was that Suleiman, the new vice president, met with these factious groups, one of which, the strongest of which, was the Muslim Brotherhood, the group that has spawned Hamas, and the group that has caused some tremendous trouble and shaking throughout the Middle East. Now, I'll tell you what, if the Muslim Brotherhood come into power in Egypt, if they get a seat in there, he says in verse 4, I will deliver the Egyptians into the hand of a cruel master. Now, I thought about this. I read this. I thought, is this what's going on, Lord? And so I did a little bit of digging. Now, this kind of thing has happened before in Egypt. This is not new news. As a matter of fact, from 690 to 7, or 670 B.C., Upper Egypt and Lower Egypt were in civil war. And after 671 B.C., after much infighting and division and unrest, Esaradon, the king of Assyria, came down and conquered Egypt and was a mighty ruler over them. And he was cruel over Egypt in those days. And there are Bible commentators who take Isaiah 19 and said that's what was being prophesied about. Isaiah prophesying, you know, around 700, a little, little earlier than that. That's what's going on here. Well, that was then, and this is now, and in this frightening unrest spreading across the Arab world, we are seeing Egyptians pitted against Egyptians again. And the indication of Isaiah is that this mighty despotic ruler doesn't appear to be from without of the country, as the Assyrian king was, but from within the country of Egypt. That he's going to raise up one from within. And furthermore, following the conquering, and this is what I found really interesting, the Lord declares that Egypt itself will come under a severe judgment. Watch this, verse 5. The waters from the sea will dry up. The river will be parched and dry. The canals will emit a stench. The streams of Egypt will thin out and dry up. The reeds and the rushes will rot away. The bulrushes by the Nile, by the edge of the Nile, all the sown fields by the Nile will become dry, be driven away, and be no more. And the fishermen will lament. And all those who cast a line into the Nile will mourn. And those who spread nets on the waters will pine away. So you see, we have more to watch for. As we question, is this, Lord, are you giving us some insight here? Moreover, the manufacturers of linen made from combed flax and the weavers of white cloth will be utterly dejected, and the pillars of Egypt will be crushed. All the hired laborers will be grieved in soul. So there's more 
to come with this prophecy, not simply that they're overcome, not simply that there's civil war or infighting and then a mighty ruler that raises up from within, but there's more that will happen actually to the land as judgment unfolds before the Egyptian people. But here's what leads me more than anything else to believe that this prophecy has a future fulfillment rather than a past fulfillment. It ends, gang, it ends with Egypt worshiping the Lord. With Egypt praising the God of Israel. Skip down to verse 17. The land of Judah will become a terror to Egypt. (laughs) It is. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will be in dread of it because of the purpose of the Lord of hosts which He is purposing against them. It's astounding in the world stage today that the Egyptians would have any concern from the Israelis, this tiny little podunk country to their north. And yet after the Six-Day War, and again the Yom Kippur War, Egypt knows that Israel is a powerful little nation. Verse 18, In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will be speaking the language of Canaan and swearing allegiance, watch this, to the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. Now note this destruction there, the word is sun. The city of the sun, it's Heliopolis. It is the or was the key city in Egypt for idol worship. And what Isaiah is telling here is that in this city of idol worship, it will shift from uh, from idolatry to worship of the Lord. Which means the whole entire heart of Egypt itself will change and will become a God-fearing nation. Something we've never yet seen happen. But it will change according to the prophet. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord near its border. It will become a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt, for they will cry to the Lord because of oppressors, and He will send them a Savior and a champion, and He will deliver them. We're not talking about Israel. We're talking about Egypt. Why would God do this for Egypt? You know, for a long time, Egypt was good to Israel. When Joseph was there, when... Jacob and the 70 or so of Israel came down to live in Egypt. Joseph was in charge. They gave the people the land of Goshen, some of the best land in all of Egypt. And the people lived there for a long time under the care of the Egyptians. The Lord doesn't forget. He doesn't forget a favor given. Well, the Lord will make Himself known to Egypt, verse 21. The Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. They will even worship with sacrifice and offering and will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. The Lord will strike Egypt, striking but healing. So they will return to the Lord and He will respond to them and will heal them. And if that's not wild enough for you, check this out. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. Assyria? Syria today. There's going to be a highway that runs from Syria, north of Israel, northeast, down to Egypt in the south running. It's going to run right through Israel, gang. And the Assyrians will come into Egypt, and the Egyptians into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third, with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. That's peace, gang. The peace that has long been sought for in the Middle East, 
that every president going back how many years has tried to proffer. That peace will be brought by Jesus Christ where even Syria and Egypt and Israel will worship in a unified peace the Lord of hosts, Jesus Christ, ruling and reigning there out of Jerusalem. It's an amazing prophecy. And only the Lord can achieve this. Only His coming kingdom will bring such miraculous peace. I read this to you this morning not to say, this is it. This is it. Turn on the news channel. It is Isaiah 19. I don't know that. I'm not sure of it. What I am sure is the Lord is going to bring all this to a marvelous, powerful, peaceful, perfect conclusion. And that brings me such incredible assurance in the Lord. That's why I'm interested in Bible prophecy. It assures where we're headed. You know, we take that small step of humility before the Lord. Now we take the sure step of prophecy. We can know God has it well in hand. While the streets of of Egypt explode in unrest, the Lord knows what He's doing. He's working all these things out and He's going to bring it to a marvelous conclusion. The short step of prophecy. It is as important, gang, as the small step of humility because it assures the worshiper who is going up. Psalm 133. 133, verse 1. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head. Coming down upon the beard, Aaron's beard. Coming down upon the edge of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion. From there the Lord commanded the blessing. Life forever. Number three. Third step. See the small step of humility. We see the sure step of prophecy. Number three. The supportive step of unity. The best way to ascend to the kingdom is together. Not on your own. Not as as some singular individual, but together in unity. This is a high priestly psalm, Psalm 133. One of my favorites. It recalls the day when, when Aaron was first anointed high priest. And you can imagine that day as that oil dripped from his head down onto his beard. All Israel gathered around. All Israel was unified. In, in a moment that was awesome and divine and sublime. In that moment, there wasn't any fighting. There wasn't any bickering. It was just, we have a priest to God Most High. We really are a people. There were significant moments throughout their journey after leaving Egypt and coming into the Promised Land. And that moment of Aaron's anointing, oh, incredible. As this took place, David describes unity with this picture of the anointing of Aaron. Why? Well, you Bible students know, oil and anointing both speak of the Holy Spirit. They're both indications of what the Holy Spirit can do. The Holy Spirit alone can bring about true unity. Without the Holy Spirit, actual true unity cannot be realized. I mean, you can, you can put pit Packers against Steelers and you can unify two groups of people to a degree. But even within that, there's going to be some disagreement about who should be playing and you know what plays should be called and what snacks you're going to have today. I mean, there's, you can't agree on everything. The Holy Spirit has this way of unifying where nobody else can. The supportive step of unity. Why then, Rick, are there so many divisions in the church? I suggest it's because we have quenched the Spirit. 
that within the church, if we would not quench the Spirit, there would be unity. There would be this support that we need as we take these steps toward the kingdom. 1 Thessalonians 5.19, this is why Paul had to say it. Do not quench the Spirit. Well, how do we quench the Spirit? Well, the easiest way is just don't believe in His power. Reject His working in the world today. Just say that was then and this is now and He's not part of what's going on. Well, quench. You can quench the Spirit through division. You can quench the Spirit through backbiting through gossip, through slander. These are things that the Holy Spirit does not tolerate. And Paul says in Ephesians 4, verse 1, I implore you, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I can read the whole chapter, but on down in verse 11... We're told that the Lord gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, listen, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So let me ask you, whose responsibility is it in the church to maintain unity? Well, it's it's the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the pastors and the teachers, right? Wrong! It's their responsibility to teach it. It is their responsibility to bring the equipment to say, we need to do this to call the people to it. But we all, each and every one of us, have the responsibility of seeking unity, the supportive step of unity as we move toward the kingdom. That we are unified together by the Spirit of Christ. It's not optional. Unity in the church is not a spiritual gift. It is a spiritual command. Titus chapter 3 verse 10. Paul writing to Titus, a young pastor at the time, said, Reject a factious man after the first and second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and sinning being self-condemned. And I'll tell you this. If there's any one thing that would cause me as a pastor to ask someone to leave this congregation, this fellowship, that is it. Factiousness, disunity, division, dissension. It's the only thing, really, above all other things, it's the one thing I won't tolerate. If I see it going on, first warning, second warning, bye-bye. And I'm not trying to say that I'm watching to kick people out. There are an awful lot of sins that we all struggle with. There's a lot of pain in our lives because of those sin choices. And we pray together and we seek the grace and forgiveness of the Lord. But I'll tell you what, when it comes to backbiting and disunity, God says don't tolerate it for long. You reject the factious man after the first or second warning. Why? Because unity is primary in the body of Christ. And where there is disunity and dissension, the Lord will have none of that. Why? Because you can't go up. If you're fighting on the steps, you can't take the next step. You know, if you're you're looking at each other like this, and, and there's dissension in the ranks, you're not moving forward. 
And the Lord says, I want you to move forward. Jesus prayed this. Oh, on the night of His betrayal, this was on the heart of Christ. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but also for those who believe in Me through their word, talking about us. John 17, verse 21, He says, that they may all be one, even as You, Father, are in Me, and I in You, that they also may be in us. That's the unity of the Spirit. That we might together be a unified people by the Holy Spirit of the living God. It starts right here in this fellowship. It spreads out as we, within this fellowship, look at other church fellowships and accept them in the name of Jesus Christ. And encourage the work of God and what He is doing in this region of Island and Skagit counties. It spreads on beyond that as we look to God's work in the church and the world and not think that the most important thing going on is here. Hey, this is important. It matters greatly to me. But this is one tiny little corner of the entire kingdom that God is working out. And we're unified as a part of that. Why? Why is this so important, Lord? So that, Jesus says, the world may believe that you sent me. When people look at at a group so different, even as we all are, and see them worshiping together, Steelers fans and cheeseheads together worshiping God on the morning of Super Bowl. I mean, that's something. When people see the unity and love among other people that is so different than it is in the world today, that is a testimony of Jesus and the presence of His Spirit. The supportive step of unity. It's like the dew of Hermon, he says, coming down from the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded a blessing life forever. Well, Hermon's all the way in the north of Israel. And the mountains of Zion, there in central Israel. So he's talking about a unity that involves the whole region. That pulls everybody together. David called for this, for the people to come together to ascend, supporting each other on the steps. Now, we come to the last step. Psalm 134, just three more verses. And it concludes the Psalms of Ascent kind of as a benediction. Let me read it to you. Psalm 134, verse 1. Behold, bless the Lord, all servants of the Lord, who serve by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the sanctuary and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, He who made heaven and earth. Psalm 134 is a send-off. It's a final blessing in this collection of blessings, in this collection of psalms. And before leaving, there's almost a sadness in this send-off. You see, the festival's over. People would come up three times a year to Jerusalem. They would sing these psalms of ascent. They would sing as they ascended to the temple. The, The priests would sing as they're going up the steps. And you come to the last psalm, and it's like the day after Christmas letdown, you know. Or the day after some big event that you've been planning for and longing for and looking forward to, and then it's over and it's... I just wish it wasn't over. I want to continue. Uh, Blessings are offered here in this psalm. The first two are for the Lord, and the last one is from the Lord, from Zion. And it's as the people head for home. Uh, Let me read this to you. Spurgeon wrote this, and I really like the way it reads. He said, We've now reached the last of the gradual psalms. The pilgrims are going home, and they're singing the last song in their psalter. They leave early in the morning before the day is fully commenced. While the, yet the night lingers, they're on the move. As soon as they're outside the gates, they see the guards upon the temple wall and the lamps shining from the windows of the chambers which surround the sanctuary and therefore, moved by the sight, 
they chant a farewell to the perpetual attendance upon the temple mount. That's why they're mentioned there. Who serve by night in the house of the Lord. Blessing. God bless you. God bless you. Blessings be upon you as they're, as they're now leaving. They're headed back toward their homes. But I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. You know, I, I was the kid who wanted to camp out on Tom Sawyer's Island in Disneyland. I thought there's got to be a way. Take the last little raft over toward the end of the day and hide in the tree fort. And then when Disneyland closed, I'd still be there. You know, I didn't think about how to get off Tom Sawyer's Island once I was there. I didn't want to leave. I don't want to leave. You know, we take these 15 steps up, we come to the last step, we're up there, we're there at the sanctuary of the Lord, and it's glorious and it's wonderful, and then the festival's over. And the people are going home, and and I'm the kid who's saying, I don't want to leave. I don't want to sing this psalm. I don't want to say, God bless you, see you this time next year. I want to stay right here. I want to be like Anna the prophetess. Anna, who in Luke 2.37 tells us she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. I want to be like young Joshua. Exodus 33.11 tells us that Moses returned to the camp, but his servant Joshua, son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tabernacle. He just stayed there. He couldn't get enough. I want to be like Enoch. I want to be like Enoch. Genesis 5.24 Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Hebrews 11.5 tells us a little more. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Listen, like Anna and like Joshua and like Enoch, we are not called to go home. And that's the difference here. We come to the end of, of the Psalms of Ascent. Gang, we're not called to go home. We're called to keep ascending. To keep going up. To at least stay put, remain close, be ready on the top step to lift off and be with Jesus forever. What are you saying? I'm saying the fourth step game for us, it is the step of staying in the sanctuary. Staying in the sanctuary. You want to ascend? You want to be ready to go home when He calls? Stick around. Not in this barn. This barn is not a sanctuary. You want to ascend? Dang, to go up. Again, this picture just hit me so powerfully this week. You get to the top step and then you got to turn around and go home? No, I don't want to go home. I reject that. I want to go home with a capital H. I want to be where He is. I just want to keep going. The sanctuary. Stay put in the sanctuary. Well, what's that? It's His dwelling place on earth. For the Jewish people, it was in Jerusalem. For you, for me, it's in the temple of the heart. Staying with Jesus. You can almost hear Him saying this morning, Stay with me. Stay with me. Don't wander off. Stay close. You're on the top step. There's one to go. And that next step will be into His presence for all eternity. Oh, Jesus, that's the step I want to take. I thank You, Lord, for the Psalms of Ascent. These Psalms that describe coming up to the sanctuary and into Your presence. But once there, Father, my prayer 
the blessing I would pray over all of us here today is that we would not leave the sanctuary once we have arrived. We would stay put. Lord, worshiping You and speaking with You, washed by Your Spirit, singing songs of praise to You, Lord, unified by Your Spirit. And I pray this blessing for the Bridge Fellowship and for all Your people. Keep us close until You call us to our real home, the sanctuary in heaven. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.